Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me is part of the frequently unwell TLS team of commissioning editors, Thea Lenarduzzi, who sits in a group of people, generally an unhealthy digital bunch staring forlornly at flickering screens each day, constantly passing on illnesses to one another. Dear, hello. Hello, and you're about to tell me on this podcast that things are getting better and better. Yeah, yeah. The world, Stephen Pinker, as we're about to discuss, says the world is getting better. I can tell you from the position of looking at the, at the office <laughs> and the TLS, it's gradually falling ever more readily into a sort of miasma of disease. Uh, last week, we challenged listeners to review the podcast using the medium of haikus. And here is the best one. Thea, are you ready? I'm ready. Words without writing, philosophical and smart, relaxed, inviting. Which is actually not a bad piece of poetry from Duke Silver. Thank you, Duke Silver. Thank you, yeah. We're going to do another one, another challenge. Please leave a review. It doesn't have to be complimentary, although Thea will come and cough on you if it isn't. Uh, Please leave a review in this style, the style of hard-boiled fiction. So of Chandler and Hammett and the like. You know the sort of thing, all short sentences and similes. This podcast is long, too long. As long as a night with no cigarettes would be a piece of hard-boiled <laughs> writing. Not a, and, and also, that wasn't positive, you see that? I was just m- making sure. <laughs> what do you think, Theo? Can we get, will there be some hard-boiled people out there? Time will tell. This week on the show, we delve into the world of old English poetry with all of its alliterative heft and monstrous activity. Susan Irvin will be in the studio to talk Beowulf and more, and we'll get her to read a piece of old English poetry you may never have heard before. And we discuss the issue raised so thoughtfully by Dee Ream in the 1990s. Can things really only get better? The Whiggish idea of constant societal improvement has has its most high-profile advocate, Stephen Pinker, who wrote a book back in 2011 called The Better Angels of Our Nature. He's back again with Enlightenment Now, reviewed this week by David Wooten, who can tell us if anything has changed. (laughs) 
When in 2000 Oxford University decided after two years of wrangling to make the study of Old English optional, it was taken by many as the beginning of the end. Old English was, said critics, increasingly irrelevant to modern readers. How then to explain the fact that around the same time Seamus Heaney's acclaimed verse translation of Beowulf, Old English literature's most famous exemplar, won the Whitbread Prize, now the Costa Prize, one of our more populist prizes? A blockbuster film came out a few years later, directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery of Pulp Fiction fame. So Beowulf at least seems newly relevant, hip even. More generally, one might perhaps be forgiven for assuming that Old English, specifically the study of it, is a little musty, primitive even, which is maybe what Philip Larkin was getting at when he referred to it as ape bum fodder. The (laughs) The word old isn't particularly helpful here. And yet, Old English, as Susan Irvin shows in this week's TLS, is positively vibrant. Susan joins us in the studio now, fresh, I think, from teaching Old English. Yeah. Uh, Well, perhaps you can start then by telling us, is is Old English compulsory for for undergraduates at UCL? Yes, Old English is still compulsory for um, all undergraduates in the English department at UCL. And was there similar wrangling there, or, or was it always sort of... No, I I would say that the department considers it part of its tradition um, and to make sure that we cover the whole of English literature um, from when it started. Is there more than tradition for that? Because I'm interested in it. Do you think reading Beowulf teaches you about things that then are useful in your the ongoing study of English? Or yes, I, I think that works in two ways. On, on the one hand, you've got the language. By looking at the original language of Old English, you learn a lot about grammar and parts of speech and rhetorical techniques, which then become very useful in relation to the literary study of Old English and of later English literature as well. And also the literature itself is absolutely wonderful. It's full of um, just a lot of wonderful poetry. And some of our modern authors have been very heavily influenced by it. W.H. Warden, Geoffrey Hill. Um, <coughs> Presumably because they, they studied it themselves at university. They studied it themselves at and university, it, that's and right. And it, and it stuck with them and they then wanted to, or they found themselves incorporating their responses to it in their own literature. Literature. And they would probably be the, among the first to, to argue that, you know, where one of the preconceptions might be this this primitive quality that Larkin was, was talking about. Mm-hmm. In fact, it is highly sophisticated in terms of its its poetic technique. and Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They're um, exploiting all kinds of rhetorical devices and um, linguistic techniques that make the poetry much more ambiguous and complex than it, it might on the surface seem. Is there a broad range of quality? I mean, I, I'm thinking about when I studied I, medieval English and yes. you do Chaucer, yeah. and you might you might hate me for saying this, I'm going to say it anyway. There's Chaucer and then there's a quite a falling off in some way. I mean, the Gawain poet is quite, uh, quite like, but there's quite a lot of stuff that was away from the main feature that felt as kind of a, it was a, by chance it had been preserved and we were studying it because it had been preserved. It wasn't necessarily of great quality. Do you think there is a seam of quality poetry running through the old English tradition? Yes, um, absolutely. I think that um, there are a lot of poems in the old English tradition which are, 
extraordinarily kind of rich in the, their imaginative depth and, and their interest. And I think that a lot of the kind of less certain response to um, this poetry and perhaps to some of the, the Middle English poetry as well is to do with the linguistic difficulty. So that, for instance, we read Chaucer with a lot um, more ease than we might read the Gawain poet because Chaucer's language is closer to modern English. The Gawain poet is using a dialect which is very one of the things that strikes me about Chaucer, maybe I don't know, I'm interested whether this is as true for old English poetry. He's very modern in some of the preoccupations, you know, in the Canterbury yes. Tales. There are there are jokes that are recognisably modern. There is yes. thoughts on on the relationship between men and women, between old age yes. and youth, and, and things like yes. that, which kind of have a uh, a modern relevance yes. uh, in a way that Gawain feels. It's very bound up with ritual and very bound up with a sort of rural identity that feels a long way removed. Or Pearl is about a, a sort of religious experience, a long way removed from the modern day, whereas Chaucer feels, would un- you'd feel, would understand modern England. Is that true of Old English poets, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that the Old English poets are addressing some of those questions which are actually very important um, today as well. Uh, they're addressing questions about why people are living the way that they're living, what's the place of mankind in this world, the kinds of difficulties of um, negotiating with interactions between um, people, between nations, and attempting to kind of reconcile, I suppose, some of those conflicting emotions and those ambiguities that are very much part of our human experience. Certainly when you think of poems like The the Wanderer Mm -hmm. and The Seafarer, they're all about these, these this idea of belonging and, and, yes. and, and all of that sort of stuff. I, I yes. wonder, because mm. Beowulf is sort of a help and a hindrance in, in terms of Old English poetry and in terms yes. of, of, you know, getting people interested in it because it, it eclipses so much of the, of, of the rest of the, of the literature. There's yes. um, one of the books that you've reviewed, Craig Williamson's Complete Old English Poems. What insights does, do we get from that then into the, into the culture and, and what these people were writing about? Yeah. Um, well, the extraordinary thing about um, Craig Williamson's book is that he attempts to include within one volume the whole of the corpus of Old English poetry. So what he's included in that book is over 31,000 lines um, of Old English poetry. And I think in the, the ways in which he's translated it, he's attempted to make it speak to modern readers. He's attempted to make it um, interesting and familiar, not to um, in any way underplay the complexity of the poetry um, and to build in the kinds of rhetorical techniques that um, the old English poets um, are using, but, but also just to, to make it easier to respond to than those kinds of editions of Old English poetry where you get a lot of notes and, and glossary at the back, but you, know, you haven't got the, the, the words in a, a comprehensible pattern. Who are these poets then? Because so, who are we talking about? Because if you said, think of an Old English poet, yes. am I thinking of a sort of bardic figure who sort of hangs out in the great hall with, yes. the, with the dogs and, and the smoking fires. Uh, who, who are the people writing this? Well, the, the answer to that is that we, we don't absolutely know. Yeah. It's very likely that a lot of these poets are in fact Christian 
figures, perhaps monks living in monasteries who are recreating um, some of the tales of the past, thinking about them in relation to their modern worlds, their modern experiences of living in a, a very different kind of environment. They're constantly kind of setting the the past against the present. And they tap into that. Oh, so there's an argument in Beowulf, I think, isn't it, about whether it was written early, sort of mm-hmm. 700 or late, mm-hmm. as in almost in the Middle Ages when they were looking yes. back. It, does there, is there an oral tradition this is going back to, which is perhaps even Scandinavian as well? Uh, there is a school of thought that sees uh, Old English poetry as going back to a kind of oral formulaic um, production. A Homeric thing almost. Uh, almost a Homeric thing. When, yes. we, when, when I studied at university, it was very much tied into those. So I think the same mm. module looked at the uh, at both traditions ah, and, and, really? links, and linked yeah, the two, the kind of the crossing over waters, the, the yes. longing for home, the, yes. the solitude, all of those sorts of themes. Yes. One of the things that the Old English poems are very interested in is in their intersection between an oral culture and a literate culture. So you find these poets engaging with the idea of writing down in quite a kind of um, complex and, and interesting way, that they're aware of words as being something transient, of something that that is ephemeral, but at the same time they're trying to capture this language on the page. I was quite surprised actually because you, you describe a busy market of new translation of Beowulf. I suppose surprised because I think of Heaney's as being such a tough act to yes, follow. absolutely. Takes a bold yes. translator yes, to, to take yes. that one up. Um but Stephen Mitchell has has uh, has made an attempt, and what, yes. what do we what do we get in yes. that that's different? It's a very interesting attempt, I think, to translate the poem into a modern idiom. Um, he gives a a natural feel to the language of the poem. He's very concerned to bring it up to date, to make it feel contemporary. And and I think he does that very well. There is a kind of um, freshness to the diction and a real sense of narrative drive um, in his translation. Interesting too that that this idea of modernising the text, you know, some mm. people might sniffily say, well, you know, you're mm. trivialising it. And yes. I, I'm grateful to your piece because I wasn't aware of, of there actually being a word, trivialisation, which relates oh, yes. relates to scribal behaviour. It's a word that Leonard Nidorf uses. Yeah, so yes. t- tell, us, tell us about that. Well, um, uh, Leonard Nidorf puts forward a, a theory um, in his book that the scribe of Beowulf is copying something that he doesn't understand completely. He's, he's copying a language which is no longer um, the language that, or at least certain words are no longer um, familiar to him. So that the scribes um, of the, the Beowulf manuscript, in order to confront that difficulty, alter, they change the words that they find in the exemplar that they're copying from, they alter them to make them familiar. And that sometimes means changing a word into something that's familiar but doesn't make sense in the context. So, for example, you've got a phrase, gormal in yotha, as it would have been in the original, which means an old man in sorrow, but the scribe didn't understand the word yeotho, 
and therefore um, changed it to something which was familiar, which was the word yeyutha, which means youth. So you end up in the poem so completely phrased, different. <laughs> that's right, an old man in youth, which doesn't make sense. It could make it better. Theoretically, that process could. could, 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 could an yes, old man in youth, you'd have lots of people going, oh, yeah, I understand how old age and, and youthful endeavour intersects. Mm, and yeah. there'd be probably whole and PhDs it, written on, on Absolutely, and it fits on, in with yeah. the, you know, the kind of old English um, interest in paradox that. You know, it, it, uh, it's, it's very important in the poems, but in fact, it's, it's just one of a number of, of examples that Leonard Nidal gives. And you're going to read us something uh, which we'll play at the end of the show. Right. Uh, what not are you going to read? Not from Beowulf. Not from Beowulf. <laughs> no, 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 we're, we're not going to mess around. No. Yeah. <laughs> I hate this sort of populist attempt to talk about Beowulf. Let's, let's go old school, old school, old English. What, what, what are we going okay, to do? So I thought that I'd read The Husband's Message, which is a poem from the Exeter book, which was a manuscript put together in around 965, 975. Does it relate to the wife's lament or is it a completely yeah, piece? Yes. Um, this poem, the, the husband's message, and it's a 19th century title, um, yeah. and yeah. possibly the husband's message is a slightly curious interpretation of it. There's no real indication in, these po- in this poem that the two protagonists are husband and wife. They may be lovers rather than, oh, um, uh, than um, hus- husband and wife. The curious thing about this poem is that it's narrated by the staff, the wooden staff, on which the poem itself is written. And this is very characteristic. That's a common thing, isn't it's it? It's a characteristic yeah. device of Old English poetry to have an object as the speaker. So the voice of something non-human becomes uh, yeah. the speaker. Oh. Like the, the dream poem, of the get, rude, uh, I remember. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The I'm just showing off no, it's also, um, <laughs> I actually have heard the dream It's all coming back. Yeah. Yeah. The cross itself <laughs> speaks out. And yeah. the riddles, of course, which are all spoken by... Um, I quite like the riddles. Uh, mm. Objects of, of inanimate objects yeah, of we, some we, kind. They're wonderful. Well, the husband's message is often thought of as having um, riddle-like qualities and, and perhaps being influenced by the the genre of the riddle. Well, I'm looking forward to, to hearing this. We're going to have to stop theatre showing off. So we will end it there, <laughs> Susan Irvin. Thank you very much. And do stay tuned because we will hear the husband's message at the end of the podcast. Susan, thank you very much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Steven Pinker, the great writer of popular science books, wrote a book in 2011 which seemed to make one central point. It was called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and it essentially said that, taken with a long view, the world is getting to be a measurably nicer, healthier and more successful place. And this felt intuitively correct when one thinks of advances in learning, technology, medicine and so on, when one considers the gradual process of civilization, the war on barbarism that seems to be a feature of modernity, seems to be a simple conclusion to draw. But is it? Pink is at it again, producing a book called Enlightenment Now, described in the TLS this week by David Wooten like this. This book consists essentially of 72 graphs, and despite that, it is gripping, provocative, and many will find infuriating. Here to tell us why is David Wooten himself. David, welcome. Nice to meet you. But, well, let's start with these, 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 these graphs. What, what do they show, and do they show anything different to the book he produced seven years ago? Well, they, they cover a much wider range than the book he produced seven years ago. The book he produced seven years ago was all about violence. Uh, it was about homicide, it was about warfare, and so on. Uh, what he's done in this book is extend it to all, what you might think of as all the aspects of, of a good life. So he's looking at life expectancy, he's looking at prosperity, and so on. And what he's showing is that in every aspect of life that you can make a measurement, that measurement shows that things have got better and better over the last at least 70 years. It depends where on the, where on the globe, surface of the globe you are, particularly. And how many, because is that not a statement of, of the bleeding obvious to I a certain extent? I don't think it's quite a statement of the bleeding obvious, although I think it is extremely obvious. So I, and I wish it was a statement <laughs> of the bleeding obvious. And there's a sense in which Pink has gone to a great deal of time and effort proving something that should be obvious. One reason he thinks it's not obvious is that if you look at what in news programs have got bleaker and bleaker with every year that's passed over the last 40 years or so. So what, when we turn on the television or turn on the radio, what we hear is about how, how badly things are going. And we don't get the stories which tell us how well things are going in terms of increased life expectancy or the disappearance of polio or whatever. And in that respect, uh, he thinks we're getting a fundamentally skewed view of the world and we're being turned into pessimists when we ought to be optimists. And I suppose the social... I mean, the other point is because we're so hyper-connected on social media, every tragedy that happens in another nation, particularly, I suppose, if it's terrorism... I was, I was always thinking, you know, if, if a car crashes into a couple of people in Germany 15, 20 years ago, we'd never have heard about that in this country or it'd be a very small item in the middle of a newspaper. And now, of course, we hear people speculate about it or see them on social media immediately. So we're in some ways plugged in to all of the terrible, tragic things that happen globally in a way that we simply weren't 20 years ago. Even more so that as you go back, I mean, I remember as a, a young man going to Italy to live there for six months. And once a week, I would queue at the local post office to use a long distance telephone to make contact with people back in England. If you go back 80 years, postcards would have taken a week to get from Italy to England. And in that respect, we're much, much more in contact with each other. And what we get is much more bad news much more rapidly. But we also, I think, have lost any memory of what the lives of our grandparents and yeah. great-grandparents were like. And I suppose I'm, I'm in my 60s. My grandparents, uh, not until after they retired, did they acquire an inside toilet. 
Uh, In that sort of way, we've forgotten how simple, basic, elementary, rough uh, life was for most people 80 years ago. Most of the you know young people now can't remember a world without central heating and running hot water and all these things that we've come utterly to take for granted. But even things like, I was just thinking, at the end of the First World War, millions and millions of people have died. There's then a flu epidemic that kills millions and millions of more people. And that must have felt like an apocalypse. I often think about this, that it must have felt like the world was coming to some sort of tottering end. And had it been this world, we'd have all had collective nervous breakdowns. Because people were much more used to death coming out of nowhere. Uh, Penicillin comes in at the end of the Second World War. Up until that point, the smallest infection can be fatal and and children and old people are constantly dying from infections in a way that is unimaginable now. And in, in that respect, we live in a world where we feel safe and um, we've come to assume that that's a sort of state normal. We've lost track of how extraordinarily privileged we are to have the benefits of modern medicine. But we've also lost track of, of, of all the other respects in which we're extraordinarily privileged, to have the benefits of modern communication, to have, have the benefits of you know uh, the food we can get in the supermarket and so on. Extraordinary range of things that have come to seem normal to us. And then we look at the third world and, they, and, we, and we see their deprivation when in fact what we should see there by and large often is simply the way things were in, in the West 60, 70 years ago. Uh, in that respect, what what's taking place is a process whereby prosperity is rising throughout the globe, but we don't see that because what we see is relative deprivation rather than rising prosperity. So how does he reckon with climate change and the displacement of people uh, that that will entail and overpopulation and, you know, nuclear war. The rise of the robot. Right. <laughs> the rise I mean, of the he robot. takes it that climate change and nuclear war are, are the two really serious dangers that could, could leave us all or leave our children much, much worse off than, than we are now and, and potentially could you know, eliminate the human race. And so at that point, what Pinker essentially says is, well, we could fix climate change if we put our minds to it. Uh, The answer, he thinks, is not to go around telling people to turn off the lights all the time and use less. The answer is to to, uh, develop nuclear energy or to look for technological solutions to the problems of climate change. And his belief is that if we set about it, which requires us, first of all, to recognize the reality of climate change, uh, that we can tackle climate change successfully. In that sense, he has a a peculiarly optimistic view that if you identify a problem, you will find a way of solving it. He doesn't perhaps think hard enough about all the things that might get in the way of your solving it. For example, that there might not be profits in it for private companies and states might not want to make the very large investments required and so on. Another objection, David, might be in the fact that we've been talking about this for 10 minutes now and we haven't mentioned the word which is the first word in Stephen Pinker's title, Enlightenment. And he's saying, is he not, that the reason why things are so lovely now and everything's better is the Enlightenment. People suddenly worked out that uh, rationality could provide answers to to the world's problems, and that's the reason why things have got better. I sense you're sceptical of that. You think that he's right to say things are getting better, but he's wrong to say it's down to the Enlightenment. I think he's certainly right to say that when things get better for us, it doesn't mean that we're somehow making things worse for other people, that we can quite reasonably say that things are getting better generally. That I think is true. I think it's certainly the case that if you ask, when did this getting better really begin to take off, you're going to come up with an answer around the Industrial Revolution or something like that. So we're looking at the late 18th century maybe as a point of takeoff for 
progress, the point at which technology began to provide mastery over nature. And certainly there's a set of ideas that, that facilitates that. The scientific revolution and the enlightenment is a, is a nice little label. And, and in the book, he tends to say scientific revolution and enlightenment. Well, in the title, it just says enlightenment. I, I think there's a, a problem about saying ideas work on their own because ideas, you know, we are the hosts for ideas. Ideas have to live in us. So you have to ask what sort of people can provide hosts for those sorts of ideas. And it requires a certain sort of community of intellectuals to keep those ideas alive. And Pinker, in a sense, thinks that if he sells the idea of enlightenment, he's bound to find buyers. Well, I think there's lots of parts of the world and lots of moments in time when there are very few buyers for these ideas. And, and it's possible that these ideas are less popular now than they were 30 years ago. So in that sense, I think Pinker is unduly optimistic about the power of a book like his to change how people think. You might have to think about the, the, the wider cultural changes that are needed to encourage rational problem-solving approaches to life. I mean, this is part of a, a broader problem, really, isn't it, with, with, with the legacy or the inheritance of the Enlightenment, the way we, we conceive of it and, and have absorbed it. So, I mean, I suppose the fact of his, his book as well, it's sort of suggesting that if you have enough data to show such a thing, uh, that speaks for itself. You know, it's reason above all else. It doesn't really take into account the invisible things, the felt things, the, the daily experience. That's a complicated set of issues you're raising there. Pinker wants to say that we can show that life is getting better because we can measure things which show that it's getting better. Now, you might say, ah, well, maybe uh, my life expectancy is going up, but I feel absolutely miserable. Or, or maybe things are getting, many things are getting cheaper, so my money's going further, but still I feel that I'm in a, a rat race and I can't keep up. And, I'm, and in that sense, you might find all sorts of reasons for saying things don't feel better, they feel worse, you might say. Well, we now we have all sorts of uh, freedoms that we didn't have before, uh, gay marriage and so on. But look, divorce destroys families and makes children unhappy. And in fact, older families might have had, may have had much less freedom in them, but they actually had more stability and security. You might run a set of arguments of that sort. Now, I think Pinker doesn't stop and, and worry about that because he assumes that if you're more prosperous and if you've got more resources, you're fundamentally better off, and that's the end of the argument. And I think he takes it that if you started saying, no, but I just don't like where I find myself, he would say, well, well okay, pull yourself together and learn <laughs> to be grateful, I think. But there is a point. fundamentally what his response is. And there's a couple of points there, isn't it, about expectations, which is an interesting point, that if you expect to live in a certain way, your expectations may be raised and you can't fulfill them, whereas 50 years ago, your life might have met your expectations more exactly. And is that is happiness yes. defined as meeting your expectations? It seems to me to be at least an argument worth making. And then how do you measure whether 20 years of life crippled by anxiety, hyper-connected in a world that you don't understand and makes you miserable, is that better than dying a clean death at 55 in a world that you understood and, and felt was fitted to you? Those sort of things go beyond graphs, don't they? Yes, they do. And many of us would rather die of a heart attack at 65 than in a, in a nursing home at 85 uh, without, without question. And, and I agree, he doesn't touch those things very clearly or, or, or sufficiently. 
But I still think there are things you can measure, and these measurements are important, and they do tell us something. I think in that sense, he's right to say, but this is progress, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think one, one, one would want to dispute that. And I think it's certainly the case also that the amount of pain and suffering that people get from disease is, is down, not up. Um, and in that sort of way, um, one can certainly say many people may actually be afraid of old age, but old age is not getting worse. It's getting, in many respects, better than it used to be. Well, let's leave it on that optimistic note. Uh, David Wooten, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's an interesting question, actually, Thea, which I'm going to say in a very cruel fashion, but, you know, is old age better than death? Is actually not as straightforward a, a question as you might one might first think it is. Not at all. And um, we could live in a society that's full of medicine, and but communities might fracture you might live out a life that is less painful or the pain you're receiving is being medicated but it might not be a better life no absolutely not i mean it's something i've been thinking about quite a lot if you could provide me with a contract that said you will be guaranteed 65 good years and then a swift death versus you know we'll keep you alive for as long as we can you know you can have 90 years yeah um i think i would sign the contract the first contract do you yeah i really I really do. I was talking about someone about assisted dying, which is always in the news. And the, uh, the I think the British Medical Journal has now said doctors are for the first time ever in favour of assisted dying. And actually, I wonder whether we're going to end up in that world. I think it's very hard to argue against it ethically mm. that if we are artificially preserving lives in a way that we are, there must be a metric of quality of life that we've got to try and find a way of clinging to a bare number of life expectancy can't be the be-all and end-all can it no and the, i suppose the main with that the main thing would be whose argument wins out whose whose uses if you like of assisted dying yeah. wins out is it big farmer who stand to you know who stand to profit from that kind of a, a, a oh, policy God, shift <laughs> or or is it is it reflected back into in terms of what the people need quality of life yeah uh, liberty these enlightenment ideals of liberty and inequality and uh, yeah that, i suppose that's that's what it comes down to and i think you end up with this pinker thing i totally to the point where i can't quite believe it's worth two books it's obviously things have got better than in say 1920 so on one hand, I think this book's too obvious to, 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 to warrant much discussion. And on the other hand, I do feel, talking to David, there's probably lots of complex stuff that it doesn't quite manage to, to grapple with. Well, it's, exactly. So, I mean, I would be very interested to, to see what's happening beneath the lines. Uh, you know, so fine, things are less violent, things are getting better. But why earlier this week was there news in, in the British papers of a doubling in recent years of people being admitted to hospital for eating disorders. Yeah. You know, we're getting better, we're getting more prosperous, we're living longer, but we're making young people ill. We, I wanted us to be cheery there, and Matt, our producer, is uh, saying... Why, oh, why buck the trend? Yeah, <laughs> why, why be different to every yeah. other week? Let's just leave it. <laughs> Everything's awful. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Susan Irvin and David Wooten. If you want to read more of the TLS, do buy a copy or go to our website. This week we have two essays by Edith Wharton and Marilyn Robinson on the subject of the American character. Both credit the Puritans oddly. And remember, please do review us on iTunes. Review this podcast this week in the style of hard-boiled fiction. And we will read out any and all of the best efforts next week. Next week, we're going to be diving, I hope, into the murky, mystical world of Isaac Newton. And we're going to play out now, though. You heard her earlier. Susan Irving is going to be reading from, what was the poem called, dear? 
Uh, it was the husband's message. The husband's message, which is in a Craig Williamson's the new complete translation, old English poems, and it's narrated by a stick. <laughs> it is. Yes. I'm not making that up. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Here is Susan Irvin reading the poem. Now I can speak secretly to you, pass on my message, sing of my lineage, tell you what kind of childhood I had, what kind of tree I was taken from, how I was shaped into silent song. Over the salt seas I was forced to sail at my lord's pleasure from foreign lands, on ship's plank or prow, visiting towns, seeking the loved one to read my runes. A stave of words, I am quietly yours. I bear you the carved thoughts of my lord's love, so you may know in your heart of his deep devotion. I pledge and promise his love is true, his trust holds, his faith is fixed. My lord and shaper sends his greeting, begs you to recall in your rich array the vows you shared when you held a home, trading talk, waking as one, walking the land in the sweet trust of love. A feud drove him away from his victory-proud people, sent him sailing into exile. Your loving Lord sends you this message. Go down to the cliff's edge, the sea wall, and listen for the spring-sad cuckoo's song wafting from the woods, plaintive, persistent. When you hear that sweet, mournful melody, let no one hinder your heart. Go down to the sea, set sail south over the gull's ground. Let the whale road take you to where your Lord lies, waiting, wanting, expectant in exile. His sole wish, as he said to me, is to have you home with God's grace so your love may thrive, and both together can share the hall, giving out treasure, a reward of wings, to warriors and thanes, a prince's pleasure. He has a store of hammered gold, a great estate, enough for all, a place of power in a foreign land. Long ago he fled the feud, launched his ship, escaped into exile, bound by necessity to sail the whale road into foreign lands. Now he has vanquished woe, won over strangers, wrestled down fate. He can lack no joy, want no treasure, no fine horses, no mead hall pleasures, no great possessions, if he has you, a prince's daughter. Let my runes remind you of your vows together. I hear S and R, Siegelrad, the sun road, the sails pathway, E, A and W, Erwin, the sea joy, and M for Mon, man, all of them inviting you to set sail under the sun across the sea to your Lord, who has kept his oath of love alive and cherishes the vows you voiced together. Let my runes recall and reveal his love. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.